1: Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind as we start a brand new week here at Georgia Public Broadcasting. Very glad to have all of you with us, as I always am. We have a jam-packed show today, and so I want to get right to it. Uh, Jim Galloway, as you all know, former political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with me as he is on Mondays. Jim, I'm very happy to have you here. We're going to devote the show again today to a conversation about what is happening in Ukraine, where developments grew increasingly ominous, I think it's safe to say, over the weekend, especially because Vladimir Putin over the weekend um, ordered his uh, nuclear forces into what he called special combat readiness. Um, It is fortunate for us that in the aftermath of that awful threat, that um, we have joining us for the show today former united states senator sam nunn who of course was the chair of the armed services committee preeminent expert in the senate on national defense but since those days since he retired from the senate um, he became one of the founders of the nuclear threat initiative uh which uh it was an organization that allowed uh, Senator Nunn to follow a passion of his, which is to reduce nuclear stockpiles um, in countries uh, that are uh, uh, capable of launching nuclear weapons. And so, Senator Nunn, thank you. Uh, uh, it, it's, it's a coincidence of timing, but I'm awfully glad you can be with us today to uh, discuss this. And I, I think the first question has to be, just in general, what do you make of uh, Putin's threat. Is he really, when he says, wants his forces in to go into special combat readiness doing anything new, or is this just more saber-rattling?
2: Thank you, Bill. Good to be with you and Jim. Uh, I would say that, um, the first of all, the invasion by Russia was unprovoked. It was illegal, in my view, immoral. The second thing I would say is the top priority of both Russia and the United States, is to identify mutual interest. And the mutual interest we have is to prevent nuclear use or nuclear war. Uh, We are in a very dangerous period. Uh, Putin's order about alerting the nuclear forces is um, ominous, and it makes everything unpredictable. We don't know what they're doing on the ground, at least in unclassified circles in terms of their nuclear forces. But I would say two steps are absolutely essential immediately. Uh, number one is to stop the war, stop the ceasefire, stop I mean, stop the uh, killings, uh, impose a ceasefire, and basically uh, prevent escalation up the ladder to even uh, possible nuclear use uh, by by Russia. Uh, the second thing is is uh, To say to Mr. Putin, take your nuclear weapons off alert. This was, uh, I think, a reckless move. It shows some degree of fear and desperation on the part of Putin. It makes the dangers go up, not just the danger of escalation, but we're in a different era now. We're in a cyber era where false warnings and interference in command and control is entirely possible, not just from nation states, but from third parties. So it's in the mutual interest of the United States and Russia, with 90 percent of the nuclear weapons in the world, as well as Great Britain and France. We have four uh, nuclear powers involved in the dangers, immediate dangers in Europe. It's in all of our interest to de-escalate the immediate conflict and to take nuclear weapons off the table.
3: Senator, uh, for the last decade, you've been, uh, you've expressed worry about the lack of communication uh, up and down the chain of command between the United States and Russia when it comes to nuclear weapons. Is there any communication going on right now? I mean, has that been completely cut off?
2: Well, the communication is not nearly as robust as it used to be. We had very uh, robust communication during the Cuban Missile Crisis. I can't Speak to how much back channel is going on now, uh, Jim and Bill, but uh, I do think those back channels are enormously important. We've got to be able to talk to each other. We at NTI have two Russian board members, and they are very constructive board members. One of them is uh, Igor Ivanov, who was the former foreign minister of Russia. So we're in communication uh, with them. We also have a European leadership group. Uh, that um, is headed by uh, the former British Defense Minister, Des Brown. Uh, we have Russian members of that and European leaders there and former leaders, and we're in communication there. But these are all track two, these are all non governmental contacts. The important thing is for our governments to be talking, including, I think, most importantly, military to military discussions. Uh, certainly, the military understands the dangers and they know that. When one side goes on the nuclear alert, it's awfully hard for the other side not to go on nuclear alert. We have to see what's going on on the ground, and a lot of that is classified. But we need our top military uh, leaders talking to each other.
1: Uh, Senator, what do we know? You, Your effort, um, a, a, along with uh, former Senator Mark Cohen, the Republican, was active with you in the beginning of NTI, Um and uh, uh, this has been a passion of yours, to uh, to work on reducing nuclear stockpiles, at the same time <clears throat> being willing to work with countries on modernizing their, their weapons programs. What do we know about the stockpiles in Russia right now?
2: Well, of course, the Russians have modernized their nuclear forces, and uh, modernization is essential because you have to make sure you don't have Weapons that are deteriorating and cause uh, safety dangers. Uh, but the buildup of nuclear forces is uh, something we, we want to avoid. And, of course, uh, President Biden and President Putin did extend the START agreement. That's the good news. And we are engaged in strategic stability talks with Russia. Now, those are going to be under great strain. But even when you're in this kind of uh, basic disagreement and even uh, possible confrontation, Uh, It's important for the nuclear leaders of the world to talk to each other. And that starts with the United States and Russia, who, as I have said, uh, often have 90 percent of the nuclear weapons and most of the nuclear materials in the world. So it's not just the weapons uh, that uh, are important. It's also protecting nuclear materials, keeping them out of dangerous hands, making sure we don't uh, have uh, proliferation. And one of the consequences of Russia invading Ukraine is uh, very disturbing in the sense that, uh, of course, there are many consequences disturbing, but one of them is, is relates to the nuclear, and that is uh, that it basically unfortunately sends a signal that a country giving up their nuclear weapons uh, is invaded by a country who uh, assured their security when they gave up those nuclear weapons. Yeah. Now, Ukraine did not have operational control of the nuclear yeah. weapons, but they had physical control. And they had the third largest nuclear arsenal in the world when they gave them up. And both the United Kingdom and U.S. and Russia assured that we would respect their sovereignty. And that uh, that is enormous, and an enormous breach, um, unfortunately, by Russia. Um, Jim- Senator?
3: Yeah. Uh- I'm, I'm interested in how this uh, invasion by russia is going to change the map of europe uh, uh on sunday uh senator rob portman of ohio uh said that he would recommend the immediate admission of of, of uh ukraine into the nato fold uh and you've had pre- uh uh president zelensky uh ask ask for a membership in the immediate membership in the european union are, are either of those good ideas and, and 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 just how is how is how is how would Russian troops on the Ukrainian border change the dynamics of, of, of Europe? I mean, we've already seen uh, uh, Germany uh, finally grant uh, its, uh, uh, itself permission to, to issue weapons. Sweden has, has kind of sh- uh, put aside its neutrality. Switzerland might.
2: Well, I have a lot of respect for Rob Portman, but I disagree with that suggestion. Uh, President Biden has made it clear that uh, Ukraine is not a member of NATO. We do not have Article 5 obligations uh, to defend them. We are helping them politically. We're helping them economically. We're putting sanctions on, and we're furnishing them uh, defensive weapons. All of that is enormous and important. We should step it up. But uh, inviting them to come to NATO when they're at war means that, in effect, it would be taken in Russia in all likelihood as a declaration of war by NATO on Russia. And, of course, nuclear escalation uh, is... Uh, a huge danger there. Uh, you know, we there are, re- there are reasons that go way back in history that U.S. and Russia have tried to not come to any kind of conflict, and the reason is is because we have the power together to destroy most of the world, and we have to keep that in mind.
1: You know, Senator, um, you certainly had a front-row seat during your days in office uh, to watch the Cold War unfold, and and to watch the the uh, Cold War, finally come to an end. What, what's kind of staggering to think about is that there are a couple generations of Americans who have no memory of what it was like to live uh, in a, a world in which the Soviet Union and America were arch enemies, in which nuclear war was threatened uh, time and time again. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, when you see this suddenly uh, come rushing back at us, what are your uh, thoughts on that? And if I can ask you a blunt question, is is Putin has has Putin become a, a, a madman?
2: Well, I've, I've met with Putin on a couple of occasions uh, with a group of five, six, seven people, including Henry Kissinger, George Shultz, and Bill Perry, and so I've had several hours with him. Um, I'm concerned that his appearance is such that he's displaying in his words and appearance. Mm-hmm. Uh, profound uh, discontent, even hate. I think he's also showing fear. I think the nuclear alert, which was uh, reckless, uh, demonstrates that. So I'm concerned about uh, his stability and his balance. Um, The nuclear deterrence uh, depends on rationality of leaders, particularly the leaders of the U.S. and Russia. But all nuclear weapon states have to have rational leaders if we're going to avoid a catastrophe and it also depends on accurate information. And as I mentioned, the accurate information part is uh, no longer as assured as it was in the cyber world. So for all of those reasons, uh, I think it, it's a deep concern. It is not in the interest of anyone in the world for the leader of a major nuclear power uh, to have any form of instability. Um, hopefully, hopefully, We will go back to a pragmatic Putin, and hopefully we will see a de-escalation. Again, uh, the most important thing is to have a ceasefire to stop the killing. The Ukrainians have been enormously courageous, and I think they have won the admiration of the world. And I think Putin has lost uh, any semblance of support in most countries of the world. So uh, it's time to stop what is... uh, I think a very reckless and very dangerous uh, pattern here,
3: uh, Senator. I know. I know you. You are, are 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 also an expert in conventional warfare, and I'm just interested. I mean, this has been uh, a, a horrifying but yet amazing uh, week in which we can we we we've seen uh, a war unfold in real time uh, via social media. Uh, and and, I, and I'm wondering what kind of what kind of impact this is I mean we saw the beginnings of this with with the Iraq war when CNN was in was in baghdad but this seems this seems to uh, uh, uh very much a, a co- compounded situation where me sitting in my living room can watch can watch the siege of Keith in in just in nanoseconds after it's after it's begun
2: that's right and and uh Social media, of course, we've got a lot of problems with social media, including in this country, but social media plays a big role uh, in uh, warfare now. Uh, Look at the will and courage being displayed by the Ukrainian people. And this is, um, uh, you know, you really, really, really have to um, have to say this is making a strategic difference because uh, one of the big things I think is probably not realized enough is that uh, Russian people don't hate the Ukrainians, um, and in my opinion, vice versa. They've been uh, friends and family and speak the same language. They have the same religion. So this is not like Chechnya. Putin was a hero when he came in and crushed che- Chechnya uh, in their rebellion back when he first took office. Uh, but that was because of his animosity among the Russian people. But that's not the situation now. So the stand that Ukraine is taking. um, And, of course, the tragedy is uh, the civilian casualties, and that could escalate greatly, so that's a real danger. But the courage they've displayed has stretched out this uh, conflict to the point where public opinion in Russia is coming into play more and more. Uh, Time works against the Russians and uh, because of their own public opinion. And most of the propaganda being put out, uh, by the Russians is not for European beliefs. They don't. I don't think they're going to get European buy-in on any of this propaganda or U.S. or indeed the world. It's for the Russian people. And the more time that goes on, the more danger there is to the leadership in Russia.
1: Uh, Senator, we only have a couple more minutes uh, of your time, and you've been very gracious to give us so much time already. Um, but, but I want to ask you about the conventional warfare that Jim's talking about. Um, We as you said and as the world has watched and we're going to talk about this with our our next guests um, The ukrainian people have shown just extraordinary courage. It's been it's been so thrilling to watch But but the fact of the matter is um, We're looking on cnn at video of uh, a three-mile long convoy of russian uh, Armor and troops coming in Um, Is it inevitable? that the Russian army will eventually overcome the extraordinary resistance of the Ukrainian people and take Kyiv and decapitate uh, the government uh, right now in Ukraine?
2: Well, I don't think it's inevitable because I hope that Russian public opinion will help begin to change that equation. Of course, they have the advantage and uh, the longer it goes on. But uh, when you look at the Stinger missiles that have been put in there, Uh, That caused the Russians uh, what would otherwise have been uh, total air superiority. Stinger missiles are ground-to-air missiles, and that means it's much harder to fly and certainly it's much harder for Russia to enjoy the dominance of the skies. Uh, We've also had um, uh, the anti-tank weapons, which make an enormous amount of difference. And you've got the other thing that's happening And I think this can have an effect on public opinion, too. The sanctions are very strong now. Mm -hmm. And the Russian people's savings account may come into play. Certainly the reserves that Russia has uh, built up over the long period of time are are under threat because they can't uh, convert those uh, reserves as they need to. And, of course, I think President Biden's done a tremendous job of unifying NATO, And, of course, Germany has stepped up to the plate big time. So uh, most of the things that President Putin feared are taking place. So his invasion has been a strategic blunder and has been counterproductive to Russia's own interest and certainly counterproductive to the interest of the Russian people.
1: So uh, we got one last question to get in here, Jim, before we have to go.
2: Yeah, Senator, this,
3: let me get a little historical. Uh, 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 back in 1939, 1940, we had a, rep, uh, a, a Georgia congressman named Carl Vinson who saw that Japan and Germany posed a, a double threat in international arenas. And a, a two-ocean navy was the re, the result. I think you've got some familiarity with this. We're seeing <laughs> are, are we seeing a similar situation building with Vladimir uh, Putin in Russia and Xi Jinping in China, and and if so, what's what's what has to be the U.S. reaction?
2: Well, of course, we've got to find ways to build bridges to the Russian public and to the Chinese public. I don't think it can be just to the leadership. We can't bypass leadership. But uh, if we want our children and grandchildren to live in a peaceful world, uh, a world where we don't have danger of catastrophic nuclear war and a world where we don't have a tremendous effect from global warming and a world where we don't have uh, battles against infectious disease that we can't uh, deal with, we've got to cooperate with both China and Russia. But to do that, I think we have to have much broader outreach in the long run directly to the people because uh, safety in the nuclear realm depends on rationality of leadership. And as we're seeing, you don't always have rational leadership in the major powers.
1: Senator Sam Nunn, um, I realized uh, at the very beginning of the show, I should have pointed out that uh, you are the namesake of the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs at Georgia Tech. And it's important to point that out as we uh, uh, say goodbye to you, because being able to turn to the school to look for expertise, not just you, but the others who have uh, gathered under that umbrella— has been a, a truly wonderful thing for us on Political Rewind, and we're gonna to continue to tap into leaders at the school in the days ahead to get more information. So I wanna make sure I uh, talk about the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs. Um, it, you've done extraordinary work there. Senator, uh, thank you. It's, it's been wonderful to have you here today, and I think we all hope and pray that you are right that um, we find a way to get through this and wiser heads prevail senator
2: thank you very much bill and jim and i'm proud of adam stolberg and joe bankoff and the foundation they've laid at the nunn school and we have an outstanding faculty outstanding students and outstanding visiting professors including phil breedlove the former head of nato and including sandy winterfell the former deputy chairman of the joint chief as well as uh, a number of others so uh tap that resource it's rich (laughs)
1: <laughs> we, we will do that. We're in conversation with General Breedlove right now about inviting him to uh, do, do the show in the days ahead. Again, Sam Nunn, thank you so very much for being with us. Uh, we're going to take a break and come back with a lot more and a human side of what's happening in Ukraine in just a moment. <laughs> welcome back to uh, political rewind we're talking about the continuing crisis the war in uh, Ukraine and I, I, I we were we, what we thought we wanted to do is put a human face on this because as Jim Galloway said in the previous segment we the world has been watching um, the Ukrainian people rise up refuse to uh, surrender uh, to the Russians as they march into the country and it's been just I think a remarkable thing uh, to see, and, and I want to talk about that with our next, next two guests. Um, Tetiana Lindiel is a native of Ukraine. You grew up in a little community, I think, right outside of Kiev, uh, you said, Tetiana. You're now in Atlanta. You are an attorney. Uh, you've been here since 2012. First of all, welcome to Political Rewind. Thank you for being with us today.
0: Um, thank you, Bill, and I appreciate this opportunity um, to speak to American people um, and to explain the perspective of uh, Ukrainians who are in Ukraine right now.
1: We're also going to be joined now by uh, Chris Grant, who is the chairman of the Political Science Department of Mercer University. Chris, you were working on a Fulbright uh, sponsored project in Ukraine, uh, and you'd been there for some time, and your daughter was with you, your young daughter. And you recognized in, I think, late January that things were escalating to the point that you would leave, have to leave the country. And you're now joining us for more sub. I got all that right, Chris?
4: Well, most of that's right. I should say that the State Department told me and my daughter that my grant would be terminated if we weren't out of, oh. out of Kiev by January 27th. And I should tell you that like many people, including Ukrainians living in Kiev, We thought this was over the top. We didn't believe that this was going to happen. We thought that, you know, Ukraine's been in a state of war for eight years since the Russian incursions into Donbass and the annexation of Crimea. It has been in this perpetual state of conflict, although mostly um, suspended, although people were being killed in Donbass every day, every month at least. And um, I've spent a lot of time in this part of the world in Moldova and Georgia, Armenia and Azerbaijan, all of which have ongoing territorial conflicts. So I really never imagined that Vladimir Putin would feel confident that he could march across the Ukrainian border. And certainly, I never imagined that he would come to Kiev. One of the reasons I never imagined this is because I know and I've been interviewing Ukrainian people for several years now about um, their um, sense of democracy and um, and um, civic identity. Ukrainians are dedicated to democracy in Ukraine, deeply dedicated. I wish we could import some of that dedication to the United States. They hmm. care. And I think we're seeing that right now.
1: Uh, Tetiana, you're uh, on the board of the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America's Georgia's branch, I, have you and your colleagues, whether it's part of that organization or just in the com- Ukrainian community in general, are you keeping regular touch with friends, family in Ukraine and hearing from them about how things are unfolding?
0: Um, yes, we stay in touch with everyone every day. Um, there is also, you know, social media is responding with all different types of jokes right now just to up the stress. So there is a joke, uh, no Ukrainian in America goes to bed until it's morning in Kiev. We stay in touch throughout the night. Uh, Many people who are in bomb shelters right now, um, they very often do not have Internet. So they they cannot talk to us, right? So we we sit there and watch the phone to see if they were online. What was the last time they were online? We wait until 6, 7. I think in Kiev this morning it was 7 a.m. when um, um, when they they allowed people to uh, uh, go upstairs to their homes if they needed um, from the bomb shelters. So we wait for that 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock to get in touch with them to make sure is everyone all right? Is everyone safe? Do they have food? Do they have water? It has been very stressful, four to five days for us here in the United States. So I cannot even imagine what those people are going through there. And all of my friends are in the bomb shelters right now in Kiev or some of them who are able to leave Kiev and they are on the outskirts of city, and some of those small towns and villages around Kyiv, especially on the Western side of the city are under the siege are under attack. Um, the news we're getting from there are, are not, um, very positive, unfortunately because people have a lot of fear, but as you have pointed out on your show already, the courage that Ukrainian people demonstrated to the world is incredible. And, uh, what I hear from my friends, some of my friends actually joined the volunteer units, and they patrol patrolling the streets uh, with a weapon, uh, and they're ready to defend the city. But what my friends in Kiev telling me, if Russians were to start moving into the city, they will be shoot at from every single window of this city. They're not going to take it. Our people will protect our president, so the last bullet, so the last breath. They're not going to give up. And uh, as Chris pointed out, and I appreciate, Chris, you saying that as an American who has been in Ukraine. You, and your earlier guest was also was speaking about Cold War and the battle for the minds of people. Ukrainian people believed in democracy. Ukrainian people listened to the West. They listened to your success stories for the other countries, how people can live in democracy, in free elections, in free society, with human rights. And they believed in this. And they're willing to die for this idea. Europeans are not willing to die for their democracy. Americans will not die for their democracy. Ukrainians will die, and and they want to have a free, They want to live in a free world, and we need help. What we need, we need help.
1: Jim, let me get you get you in here.
3: Uh,
1: uh, Jim, turn, we uh, lost Europe. Uh, uh, yeah, there
3: you go. There we go, uh, Titania and Chris. Just uh, this is—I want to build on something that that uh, Senator Nunn uh, uh, made note of, and that was that kind of the, the 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 Achilles heel for Putin in this war are the familial uh, relationships uh, between Russia and and Ukraine, the family ties, the the the, the fact that I've got an uncle uh, uh, who lives in Moscow, my aunt lives in Kiev. Uh, Talk to me about about that 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 kind of that that uh, it's 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 kind of a solidarity of blood rather than a solidarity of nations. I think.
1: Um, well, yes, Chris, uh, and then Tatiana, uh, Tatiana, go ahead, and then Chris will weigh in.
0: Okay. Yes, yeah, that is that, it true? Uh, there's uh, families on both sides of the border because, obviously, for historic ties, political ties, economic ties, all of that, and people are talking to each other. But the problem that we have is russian media propaganda that disseminates false messages about ukraine in russia so it's very hard to get this message across because for 20 years since mr putin has been in power in russia they were demonizing ukraine the russian media tell their people that they're neo-nazis in power in ukraine well our president is jewish how is it possible So we're talking to people. I send messages to all. I don't have many friends, to be honest, in Russia, but whoever I have there, I try to tell them, you have power to stop this war. Talk to your government. Every voice matters. And there are some families that support on the Russian border on the Russian side of the conflict. There are a lot of people who are disagreeing with this war. There are a lot of people who don't support it, but they're afraid to voice their their thoughts because... They live in oppressive regime. They live under dictatorship. They cannot speak, and they're afraid, and we understand that. But we're asking them to start spreading the truth. We're sending them true information. we send sending them videos from the streets of Kiev. we send sending them videos from all over Ukraine so they can see what's happening there.
1: Chris, I want to give you a chance to answer that, but let me add a layer uh, that I'd also love to get you to respond to. President Zelensky, we know, was an actor and a comic who played— the president of ukraine on a tv show when he decided to run for president and and the world there were many people in the world who saw his presidency from a comic perspective thought it was absurd that he was actually elected and yet in this crisis his courage his determination the passion with which he has rallied the Ukrainian people has been absolutely remarkable. So certainly talk about those relationships between Russians and Ukrainians, but also add Zelensky to the mix.
4: Well, well, thanks for giving me that, that hook because it's important. And everything Tatiana has said is right on the mark. I could not say it better. So I won't repeat what she said, but I will talk about President Zelensky for just a second. President Zelensky is not only Jewish, but he grew up in a Russian-speaking family. Russian is his first language. One of the things that Senator Nunn may have have not glossed over a little bit in saying that they speak the same language, Ukrainian and Russian are not the same languages. They're they're significantly different. And um, there is a sense that Russian speakers are really under oppression by Ukrainians, or at least this is what Putin has been telling Russians over and over and over again, in fact, he even goes so far to say that he was stopping a genocide by walking in. What I can tell you is that is absolutely false. The Ukrainian people, by 74%, the majority of whom are Ukrainian speakers, elected a Russian-speaking president. I did an interview just before I left Kiev with a civil, rights, uh, civil society activist. Um, Russian speaker asked him about his ethnicity. Oh, I'm Russian. I'm from Lugansk. This is, this is Donbass. I'm living in Kiev now because I was run out of my, my home by um, Russian separatists who I'd never seen before this um, propped-up war started in 2014 that's now turned into a very real, broad conflict. And he is a Russian speaker, and he says, I am a Ukrainian, and he's a Ukrainian patriot. I know of a Russian-born woman who is now gone to take up arms and join the militia because she's a Ukrainian. So this crazy notion that this is something about language or ethnicity is just completely false. And President Zelensky may be the best manifestation of somebody that is that. He was not doing terribly well in terms of public opinion polling and being successful in combating corruption in his own country. He was having some real problems, but he has risen to this occasion. And it is an amazing moment of seeing someone galvanize into becoming a true leader. Um, and I, and I'm, I'm very, I have a great deal of admiration for him.
3: Yeah, it, uh, if you could elaborate that on Chris, uh, 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 what were, I mean, uh, what, were, what were the issues facing Zelensky before the war? Uh, uh, because his polling numbers were, 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 were pretty much tanking. Uh, I mean, yep. what what were the issues that that, that that he kind of that he kind of fought with there?
4: Sure, if, if I were going to give some criticism to what his administration had been, he really did come out of kind of nowhere. Decided he was going to go and fix the government, or <laughs> had a lot of people fix the government. His own political party did not allow career politicians to run for seats in parliament, so you have a government of amateurs, really, and. A lot of us think, oh, that's great. we get a government of amateurs, and that'll fix everything. Well, amateurs also don't know how the machinery works. And they were struggling. Um, and corruption was on the rise in Ukraine and not going down, which had been the hope of the Zelensky administration. A lot of people had voted out his, his predecessor because corruption had still been a problem in Ukraine. And now Zelensky comes in and doesn't have fixed corruption, but really had done relatively little and in some cases actually seen an increase in corruption and going on in regular transactions with governmental authorities etc and I could spend hours trying to explain the corruption issues um, in Eastern Europe and I, I won't do that right now um, but but his um, his polling numbers were going down over this I think some people didn't think he was demonstrating strong leadership characteristics that has changed
1: Tatiana you um share with us your thoughts about uh, a a conversation that's going on here, a debate over whether uh, the Biden administration did enough in advance of the invasion to head it off. Were they tough enough? Uh, There are, of course, Republicans who argue that Biden didn't enforce strong enough sanctions from the beginning didn't make it clear that uh, the kind of action we wouldn't take that we've now in many cases now taken um, and then add to that whether you feel the United States has a military role in all of this
0: um, it's a very complicated question to be honest I'm not uh, I, I have a certain level of education but I would not call myself an expert in international relations and political science but uh, I think the Biden administration, given the fact that Biden was in the situation room in 2014 with Obama, he didn't want to make the same mistakes Obama made. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, they were I think they had intelligence about the potential uh, incursion, but I don't think anyone really believed in their heart it will happen. And I think the sanctions that they imposed in the first round, before the uh, military conflict has started, right, just when the uh, Security Council announced they're going to recognize independence of these two regions of Ukraine, I think those sanctions were not strong enough to give Putin some leverage to save the face, to stop the advance uh, military-wise, and to tell their people some stories that they can make up on their TV about their, you know, superiority over America, whatever they want to say. But I think Putin misread that message, or he just didn't care, and he decided to do what he decided to do. First of all, let me say that all Ukrainian people appreciate all help and support we receive from the United States, especially within the previous forty-eight hours. Where we see Swift, where we see um, assets of National Russia's bank being frozen overseas. This all is a huge help. It's not going to have effect immediately, but three, four, five days, as senator said, time plays against Russia. Because people will start experiencing a lot of difficulties simply by paying with credit cards or going to the bank, withdrawing their money, buying groceries, prices in the stores. All of it will start boiling up inside of Russia, and Putin is not interested in that. So definitely time is on our side. What When it comes to the role of the United States in military uh, operations, as a every same human being I would say no American troops on the ground. We do not want escalation. That's not what Ukraine wants. Ukraine wants peace talks. Ukraine wants resolution of this conflict. But what we have to watch out for, we do not want an imperial peace to give Putin one more year to build up their military again and go again. We want some definite security protection. I do not know with the participation of the United States or without it. doesn't look like it can happen without the United States, okay? United States must be at the table. When this, the, the peace talks that they're holding today, I do not see them leading anywhere. It's just time for Russia to buy time and time for Ukraine too. But at the final peace talks, uh, United States will be present at the table.
1: But no
3: Russian, uh, no uh, American military on the ground. No, no. tell right. you uh, uh, and, and and both and, and Chris, if if we have time to, to weigh in before the before the next break, uh, especially on the Republican side in the United States, you have seen uh, you have seen some, some pockets of support for for Vladimir Putin and Russia in, in this endeavor, uh, and you've seen. Uh, Uh, russia used that on on, uh, i mean it's uh they've been very quick to broadcast on on russian tv that on russian tv i'm I'm just wondering do either of you uh, either of you got a sense of how that is being viewed in ukraine whether they whether this this is a serious uh concern in ukraine at at this moment Uh, to be honest i would not
0: say that Ukraine people may even know about it because, as you can imagine, they don't have time to follow uh, broadcasts from the United States uh, because they're watching announcements uh, from their government whether they need to go to bomb shelter or not. Uh, But, of course, uh, Russian propaganda will use statements like this to their advantage because what they're trying to do psychologically, they're trying to make Ukraine people believe West does not care for you. West does not need you. We, You are ours. You are with us. That's what they will try to do. They will try to prove to Ukraine that Europe has failed, the United States has failed, you, we are your true friends. We're fighting right now a little bit, but we are your true friends. We know better for you what you need. So that will be used, of course, by them, but it's not going to be effective.
1: Chris, um, let me uh, put an additional uh, spin on that uh, uh, question, actually. Um You know, it strikes me, and and as a political scientist, uh, you can weigh in on this, that there's enough blame to go around in terms of different administrations, U.S. administrations, and how presidents viewed Ukraine. So while right now there are Republicans being harshly critical of President Biden, they claim, for not being tough enough on Russia to begin with, um, we can also go back and recall that as, as president, Donald Trump, withheld military assistance for Ukraine because of his reelection campaign and his efforts to engage the Ukrainians in coming up with dirt on Hunter Biden. So it it, and you can go back to the Obama administration and look at how they handled all this. So it isn't as if this is like a one administration issue that the Ukrainians have tried to deal with with our country.
4: I would agree with you, Bill, that there is blame to lay at both parties' sides. I would also say that one of the things that makes me so excited when I was doing my civil society interviews in Ukraine is that democracy is so valuable to Ukrainians. And honestly, we have in the United States become complacent in our democracy. We allow ourselves to get lined up into these tribal partisan wars instead of looking at the big picture. And I hope that this event can help the world focus on what the big picture is. We have a tyrannical dictator invading another country. And if that isn't something to wake up freedom-loving Democrats, small-D Democrats around the world, what is? And I, I agree with Tatiana that sending American troops into Ukraine at this point probably is um, with just geopolitically a, um, a, a poor idea that it could escalate in ways that are horrific. But I also will say that I find that all the times that we are talking, and I say the same thing, the, valiant, the, the um, valiance and, and um, um, patriotism of the Ukrainians sometimes feels a little bit like saying thoughts and prayers after a gun shooting. These are people who are laying down their lives, and I'll tell you one quick story for just a second. It's about a woman named Irina Sevilla. Irina Kvyat-Tivila, um and her husband both had served in the Ukrainian military. By the way, one-fifth of the Ukrainian military is women. So when you start thinking mm. about who's fighting for Ukraine, it's not just young boys. It's also a lot of <laughs> grandmothers and mothers and fathers and uh, and some young boys. And Irina Sevilla Took up. Um, it was called back into rapid response on the first night of the war, and she and her husband were on patrol with guns. And a Russian tank began to come in. This is an ovalon, the part of Kiev where I live. This is where the tank rode over the car, and they took their guns and they ordered the tank to stop, and the tank killed both of them. Oh. They left their children as orphans, and they are great patriots, and I do not want to diminish the 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 value of the sacrifice they made not only for their country but for democracy around the world but they're now dead and this never should have happened
1: um on that very sobering note let's get to our final break we'll be back with more in just a moment Chris Grant from Mercer University, uh, Tatiano Laniel, uh, a Ukrainian emigrant to the United States living in Atlanta, Jim Galloway, uh, join us for the last portion of the show now. Uh, I do want to say very quickly that while we're focused on the incredible courage of the Ukrainians fighting back against the Russians, uh, and while we are watching the way democracy seems to be coming unraveled in the United States, I don't want it to go unsaid that millions of Americans over centuries, have given their lives to preserve democracy. That should not go without being pointed out. Um, Tatiana, let me ask you, I should have asked you this initially. Do you actually, do you now still have your own family members in Ukraine right now, and how are they doing?
0: Right. So, thankfully, my mom happened to be here in the United States with me when this all started. She's visiting here in the United States. She has a flight uh, ticket to go back on March 18th. And she's very determined to go back. She believes she's going to go back to new <laughs> Ukraine happiness
2: and, and,
0: and, and health. But uh, the rest of my family is still there in different parts of town. Uh, nobody is in the city. Uh, all of them were able to leave the city. And again, they were living on the outskirts of Kiev, so they were on the western side, so they were able to leave fast. But the problem now, the areas where they uh, moved outside of the city are being heavily attacked. So that's Mm-hmm. Now they're thinking they would be probably safer inside those cities than on the outside. So, for example, uh, where my cousin lives uh, in that area, um, she said her neighbors today were uh, seized uh, Russian military vehicle with the soldiers. Uh, they took the soldiers down. They called the authorities to have picked them up. Uh, so the the fighting is actually heavily happening in the area where my family is. But there are some militia. Uh, um, Units, uh, there is uh, military units uh, nearby. They hear shootings all the time. They hear explosions all the time. They said the last night was more or less quiet uh, compared to the previous three days. Uh, but uh, there was a plane, uh, and we don't know if it was Ukrainian plane or a Russian plane at this point, but there was a plane that was taken down, um, and it fell on the um, electricity wires or some electricity um, supply uh, unit uh, so people in the area do not have electricity right now and they do not know when it will be restored. Uh, The supplies are short in the stores as well uh, but the government said today that they have uh, supplies coming uh, to the city and the suburbs Um, so they're holding they're holding strong everyone is safe.
3: Uh, yeah, Titania and Chris, if I, if I could, I want to I want to build on something that Titania, that you said that 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 gets at the fact that we may be seeing this. I mean, we're we're counting. I think this is day five of the Russian in, in, in invasion into Ukraine. But but what you're talking about is a uh, what has happened is a very permanent change in the relationship between Ukraine and Russia. And 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 one thing that struck me is what when you said that even if this is over, even if Repub- uh, the, the Russians uh, withdraw immediately, it's not really over because they because there's a, there's a, is there a belief that even if this happens, that Russia could try for a second bite at the apple? This
4: is their second bite at the apple, Jim. They, they uh, did this uh, Yes. Obama, okay. All right. Yep. And- and, and what I would also tell you is that in 2008, it is as if they did a dress rehearsal in Georgia, right down to friendly fire, uh, false flag fire. The things that we've seen um, going on in this war were practiced, have been planned. This is choreographed in a way that we just don't think of in the 21st century. And, and back to Bill's last point, I certainly respect the many Americans who have valiantly given. And there are millions of American, American Ukrainians, and other Americans currently um, working on humanitarian projects and even in serving in harm's way in Ukraine. I don't mean to diminish that that con, that set. But I think all of us have to realize that democracy and freedom comes at a price. And I think we've gotten somewhat complacent in this day and time in thinking that, oh yeah, you know, we can we can do other things. We don't have to, to keep our eyes on the prize. And I, I think this is a wake up call for us.
1: Uh, Tatiana, I, let me ask you a, a very basic question. What, what do you see in the Ukrainian character that uh, gives your compatriots uh, this strong sense of uh, the importance of democracy, being willing to stand up to Russian tanks, to Russian armored vehicles? What is it about the character of the Ukrainian people that we're seeing unfold? If you have some clues you can share with us.
0: Right, Bill. And I can speak for hours about this, okay? But to make a long story (laughs) short, any type of uh, governmental unity that Ukraine ever had, it always was historical democracy. Ukraine as a a state has never uh, been, um, you know, thrown to any type of tyranny. It always was some type of democratic government in there for for different reasons. But our ability to self-organize, when we are in danger, is is what keeps our people strong. We are very not pleasant people in daily life to each other, to be honest, when everything is quiet, when everything is peaceful. But if we see that danger is coming to us, our people will self-organize, they will defend, they will help each other like we're all brothers and sisters, and uh, giving our nation a hope that we are building a better future for our children. Because Ukraine has um, drifted from Russia forever.
1: I, I didn't mean to step on your last uh, line there, um, but thank you for that. Um, we're completely out of time uh, for today's show. But Chris Grant, how much longer are you going to be uh, in, in Eastern Europe? Are you head, are you there for quite a while? Or are you coming back to Macon soon?
4: Uh, it's a good question at this point. Um, I okay. am here. I was planning. I was hoping when I came to Poland that I would be going back to Ukraine. That doesn't look like it's going to be possible. Um, I have um, a lease for another 30 days.
1: Okay. Chris Grant, Mercer University, thank you. Uh, Tetiana Lendiel, I'm so grateful to you for being with us. Of course, you, Jim Galloway, always love having you on the Monday Political Rewind. Um, it's been, uh, for me, a really instructive and in many ways inspiring hour. It was great to have Sam Nunn on earlier. We're back again tomorrow. We'll talk Georgia politics on the show, but we will be keeping our eye on Ukraine in the weeks ahead because it is such an extraordinary story. Uh, That's it for us today. Be back again, as I said, tomorrow morning. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nigut. Take care. Stay healthy. See you all tomorrow.